Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime narrative, documentary, or series, and I talk to the people who made them, diving deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched. On today's show, we're covering the three-part docuseries, Murder Among the Mormons. I'll be joined by Jared Hess and Tyler Meesum, the executive producers and directors. A note to listeners, this podcast episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch the entire series and then listen on. We will still be here. In Salt Lake City in 1985, a trio of pipe bombings killed two people. The murder sent shockwaves through the Mormon church when a trove of controversial Latter-day Saints letters were found destroyed in the vehicle of the third victim, a renowned collector of rare documents. As he fights for his life, investigators race to uncover the truth. Murder Among the Mormons is the first comprehensive look at one of the most horrifying crimes to have ever taken place among the LDS community and the criminal mastermind behind it all. The only way to keep a secret between two people is to kill one of them. It's kind of true. The state of Utah has long been the home of the Mormons. I love the gospel with all my heart. They are driven by history, and they want to preserve documents. Mark Hoffman found document after document. First editions, history, Americana, worth $1.5 million. He was a rock star. Religion sometimes breeds amongst people some extremes. The first explosion ripped through a downtown office building. Jared Hess, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Now, you are known for your scripted comedies, including my husband's all-time favorite film, Napoleon Dynamite, full disclosure, uh, which you also wrote. What made you decide to move to documentaries? Like, How do you get from Napoleon Dynamite to this documentary? Gosh, I've just been a huge true crime buff for forever. And, you know, documentaries, I mean, I find myself watching nonfiction films far more than fictional narratives. So it's a genre that I love. And, you know, it's a way of telling a story that just has such impact where you're able to really talk with the actual people that lived it. And specifically with this story, I mean, it really hits close to home for me. I live in Salt Lake City. Um, Mark Hoffman's house is, gosh, just a few blocks away from mine, um, where he constructed the bombs and produced all of his forgeries. So it's something, you know, this particular story that just really has resonated with me. Just, I I think all the different layers, just uh, religion, deception, um, murder, all kind of rolled into one incredible crime saga is just, um, yeah, there's really nothing like it else out there. Jared, I have to tell you, it is so refreshing and wonderful to hear someone describe themselves as a true crime buff on this show. Very often directors say something like, oh, you know, true crime isn't something that I'm really into, but but you love it. And I think that it really shows in this. And I'm curious, one of the things about true crime documentaries like this is something I often wonder is like, why now? Right. I mean, this is a story that I wasn't hugely familiar with. But why do you think it's important to tell this story right now? You know, I think. Just the themes 
of the film and the story as it occurred are just so relevant to today. I mean, we live in this world of misinformation and nobody is immune to deception. We're all vulnerable to it. And I think we all have to take a really close look and be careful about the narratives that we choose to live by. One of the things that's really interesting to me about this film is how you bring the perspective of the Mormon church into the film. And I think the Mormon faith has really been a faith where there have been a lot of stories told around it that haven't shown the people who belong to the church in a, in a tremendously positive light. You know, there's very often this sense of um, with any sort of story around religion that it's like an us versus them kind of feeling. I don't feel that way at all while watching your documentary. And that feels very new to me. Mm-hmm. Was that intentional? Or are you, are you trying to be inclusive here and not make it about just because you don't believe this doesn't mean you can't understand yeah, how yeah, important yeah, yeah, yeah. it is? No, we... we there was no axe to grind with this. I mean, this is, you know, ultimately the church was a victim of Mark Kaufman in the same way that everyone that had any kind of interaction with him was. I mean, he just had a wake of carnage that was just so devastating financially, you know, innocent members of the community lost their lives. And, you know, I, for us, we really wanted to tell this story from the perspective of the people that lived through it. That was the most important thing. So one of the things I think about a lot when I watch or listen to con men stories is you very often find yourself wondering, how is this person fooled? I mean, it's so obvious that this is so fantastical. It couldn't be true. Mark Hoffman fooled the world's leading experts in document authentication. Were you surprised by the scope of his ability to be such a big player in this little field and do so well for so long. I find that incredibly surprising. Yeah. You know, he, he really, he had a six year run. He really started in 1979 and then obviously up until 1985 and, and every, uh, that was one of the, the more complex things about telling the story is it wasn't just one or two crimes that occurred. It was like every day, every transaction was a major crime and his methods were just unbelievable. I mean, he was so smart. He was a genius at what he did, but it, 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 in addition to stealing paper from the era, so it would carbonate correctly and then producing ink that would match that he would age that all checked out under the scrutiny of all kinds of scientific testing methods Um, He was so smart. But in addition to that, he had to know history. He had to know, be able to channel the voices of these ghosts from the past, these, you know, amazing figures in American history, in Mormon history, and be able to channel their voices to be able to produce legitimate content that would also pass the scrutiny of of scholars and, and historians. And then to be able to do the calligraphy, like be able to to channel somebody's (laughs) handwriting perfectly where, I mean, it was just, it was unbelievable. And and Brent Metcalf talks about that, how he would, when writing of somebody, when their penmanship, they didn't have record of it and it didn't exist, he would establish it and then later produce something that would authenticate his own handwriting, (laughs) you know, like it was just (laughs) unbelievable. So he was just so smart, making sure everything checked out scientifically, and then also having a story that backed up where it came from. And it always all checked out. So people never questioned it. 
You also don't shy away from letting us get to know some of the characters and some of their quirks, which I think is really important when you're listening to someone, you know, as kind of a talking head in a film. I'm thinking about the uh, wine and ski loving prosecutor <laughs> is Jerry. Um, Shannon Flynn, also Mark's former associate and close friend. He's enthralled by, you know, what you describe as this Indiana Jones like adventure. Now, there is a point in the series where Jerry talks about Shannon and says the problem with him is he's one of those guys who only tells you what he wants you to know. What was he talking about there? I was really curious about some of the interactions when you hear the sources talking about each other. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> it's funny. I mean, yeah, you, you nailed it. Both of those guys are probably two of the most charismatic and colorful characters in, in the whole series. And, and Shannon Flynn, too. He's just I mean, wow, the, the guy is so entertaining <laughs> and his mannerisms and facial expressions and just the way he tells these stories and, and owns them in a way. I mean, he feels like he was this super nerd, <laughs> like, you know, Brent Metcalf says he was into Soldier of Fortune magazine. He was good with a butterfly knife. I mean, it felt like he wanted to live <laughs> out this like A-team Miami Vice lifestyle, Um you know, and that got him into trouble. Like that put him, you know, as one of the the major suspects in the case. And when we were doing the interview with Shannon um, and we interviewed him over the course of two days, just because there was so much to tell. I mean, he was Mark's close associate for the last year and a half, two years before he got caught. So the stories he had were just unbelievable and, and the stuff that they would do together. But at the same time, uh, there were moments during the interview and, and you see it in the film where we ask him a very pointed question about where he was the night before the bombings. And boy, if there ever was a moment of like body language telling you something completely different than what's coming out of their mouth. I mean, that, that was like the moment when Tyler and I were like, Whoa, like, it, I mean, th th there were moments where we were just going, man, like, is there more to this story? <laughs> you know, he mm. was exonerated and definitely Mark was like a lone wolf operator. Nobody knew what he was doing, but there were times where it was like, man, Shannon, like you, you come off pretty suspect in, in, in a couple of places. <laughs> and Jerry D'Elia too, like it, it was very funny. We'd actually gone long on one of our days when we were interviewing Shannon. And so Jerry D'Elia was like in the lobby waiting for a couple of hours. And <laughs> when Shannon Flynn walked out, Jerry was like, wait a minute, I've been waiting two hours because you were talking <laughs> to that guy. I'm curious, you know, Mark, we talked about him creating his own provenance by all, creating all these backstories, being smart about being able to, you know, create the handwriting that would later authenticate the future handwriting. Right. Did he think about that with people he surrounded himself with as well? Because it seems like he had the perfect set of characters around him who had different motivations, who were coming at this from different angles. Some of them were just very competitive collectors. Some of them are very earnest, you know, uh, people within the church who like are really hungry for history. And it just seems like it's the perfect set where he could kind of play them off of each other. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny because Mark, he was so unassuming. Like he, everyone described him as having this kind of aw shucks personality. Like he didn't seem like a wheeler dealer at all. He just seemed like a guy that was doing an incredible amount of research and going after stuff. And, and because he was such, he had such kind of a dorky, personality you know it's like you know in that first interview that he did he's like 
Oh, also, I think it's kind of neat that, you know, this is Joseph Smith's first holograph. Uh, also, <laughs> it's kind of neat that the golden plates were just sitting right there. I mean, he did not seem... <laughs> a criminal mastermind. A criminal mastermind. He seemed just kind of like a doofus that stumbled onto stuff, but you could tell was bookish and, and nobody ever suspected anything at all. And so he was able to surround himself with people that were really excited about what they were going to discover. It felt like they were on this incredible treasure hunt. Um, I have a question for you. I mean, this is a thing that I think you must be asking yourself as a viewer. I can't help but ask it about Mark's stated motive here. I mean, his sort of stated motive is what? Just like messing with people and shaking people's faith. That's a hard thing for me to swallow as being the thing that would drive somebody who can look at their own crimes in such a calculated way. Do you buy that? And do you think there's something else going on? I think it's a lot of things. You know, I think, number one, he got addicted to the feeling he had when he deceived people. I think that that was exciting. It was thrilling for him. It gave him a sense of power and superiority. And that's something that he says uh, in the film. And... um so that was a component. I think another thing was the money. Like he couldn't believe that he essentially was printing money for himself by producing a fake document and selling it. Like one thing that he would do, um, this is not in the film, but this is just part of the research. He would be in his local church congregation and he'd come up to somebody and say, wait a minute, what was, what was the name of your great, great, great grandfather? Oh, such and such and such. Oh, incredible. You know what? I have a, I found a letter that Brigham Young wrote to your great, great, great grandfather. You're kidding me. Oh. We would love to have that in the family. Yeah, I could probably get it for a couple hundred bucks. Great. So he'd go home and crank that out. So he would do that kind of thing all the time. So, so it was money. Like he loved living the high life. That was something too, but he was horrible financially. Like he was always in over his head. That's the Ponzi scheme that developed. And then that Ponzi scheme and his inability to produce these documents that he was promising to people, he just got overwhelmed. And so he thinks, what do I do? I've got to, the only way I can buy some time and get like the heat off of me, because I owe, you know, I've, I've taken money from people and promised them this ginormous McClellan collection, which does not exist. Right. So I've got to like produce the biggest body of work I've ever done. And he was getting in a lot of trouble. And he's like, you know, I'm going to go kill some people and try and make it seem like it has something to do with this and hopefully buy me some time. And it all backfired. Um, but he, his willingness to go that far, you, you'd think like, wow, there's got to be another way to handle that. Has anybody from the LDS church seen your film? And if so, I'm curious to know what they thought of it. Yeah. So, you know, I uh, so far, I think... You know, the leadership has not seen it, um, but I have shared the film and the series with believing members of the faith, and the reaction's been amazing. Um, I shared it with my brother, um, and you know, who's a believing member of the church who did not know anything really about the story, and he said, wow, this really cleared the air on things that I knew nothing about. And um, it kind of gives members a chance to really confront their fears about the subject. It's always, it's, there's always been this kind of dark cloud over the whole episode. And I think a lot of people might be frightening to them. Like, oh, what am I going to learn? Is this going to be bad? Is it going to reflect mm. negatively where I 
find myself in a faith crisis. And that it's not the case at all. I think it, it, you know, in the film, we confront those things. There are some very uncomfortable things that happened, but again, it was people, church leaders under incredible amounts of pressure. We're all prone to mistakes. That's okay. And, you know, again, it's, it, it does confront parts of Mormon history that I think a lot of people might not know about. Um, one thing that I forgot to mention before, um, as it relates to Mark and did he want to take down the Mormon church? He became an atheist at a very young age, I think in his teens, you know, 14 or, or somewhere around that time. And, and so, um, he knew how to exploit those fears. You know, one thing, um, that he was, we, we allude to it in the, in the final episode, but in early Mormon history, when Joseph Smith was first beginning to translate the Book of Mormon from the gold plates, he, there were the first 116 pages of that translation got lost. And so they've existed as almost like this holy grail within Mormonism. Gosh, if we could just get the lost 116 pages. Well, Mark Hoffman, he had an outline of what that 116 pages was going to be. And he was working on it. And that was going to be his masterpiece because he knew he could sell that to the church for tens of millions of dollars. Um, and that just would have been his big ultimate jackpot. And we had the actual outline, his research cards, and Mormons don't drink. Well, the first thing that he started to write about <laughs> of one of these early prophets in the Book of Mormon named Lehi, it says, Lehi gets drunk. Lehi owns like a gold mine and is you oh, know, looking for gold. So it was like all of these fears that were packed all into the, the sins. All of like the sins one packed thing. into this thing. It's like, whoa. So you go, man, like he was going for it. And it's like, yeah, I think that there was an intent, in addition to make money, to embarrass the church, to rewrite its own history, to take it down on, on some level. Wow, like decades before the musical, he was writing the spooky Mormon hell dream, right? In 100%. These first 116 yeah, exactly right. pages. Um, I really want to hear about the experience of doing the interview with Alvin Rust. Um, it was really moving. He's the partner who fronted $180,000 to purchase the McClellan collection. You know, we sort of hear about how this is the thing that's looming over Mark's head, right? This is kind of what brings right, it all to right. a head is, is this, you know, it's basically Ponzi, right? He's not going to be able to replace the money that he was given. Um, he was so still really, really hurt by, you know, kind of what happened here. And I found it incredibly moving that his instinct was to forgive. Can you just talk about doing an interview like that and hearing something like that? What was that like? You know, he's he's 90 years old and just like a salt of the earth, like the sweetest man you'll ever meet. I mean, just the level of redemption and forgiveness, you know, he was financially ruined by Mark Hoffman. And when he was arrested and trials and things, I, I was going through a tough time. Couldn't sleep, woke up at night, Hoffman. That's all I could think about. And all of a sudden it just came to me. He's destroyed you financially, but don't let him destroy you otherwise, spiritually, physically emotionally don't let him do it and i called his dad i said i want you to know that i'm not going to hate your son 
I'm not going to understand because I don't. But would you just tell him that I forgive him and I'm going on with my life. And from that moment on, my life changed and I went on. When we were doing that interview, like myself, Janet Gargi, our producer, and Tyler, we were just all in tears. Like it was, it was such a moving moment. It's like, wow, after all that had happened, you're forgiving this guy. Um, but there were a, a lot of redemption stories that we did not have time to include. And, and one of them that I'll share here really quickly is Steve Christensen, the first victim. His father is named Mac Christensen, and he owns a number of men's like suit warehouses uh, that are very successful here in Utah. And when young Mormon missionaries are getting ready to serve a mission, it's like a one-stop shop. They go get all their suits and all their stuff that they're going to need um, to go on their mission. And Dory Hoffman, um, when she was a single mom, Mark's in prison and she's raising these kids by herself and financially was struggling. Her oldest son was getting ready to go serve a Mormon mission and they didn't really have the means to do it. And quietly, Matt Christensen, the father of Steve Christensen, who was murdered, um, stepped in and said, hey, I want to I want to provide whatever your son needs to be able to go on a mission. And it was just like, wow, holy wow. cow. I mean, it's it, so that. Yeah. So there were a number of those things. Um, what are you hoping that the average viewer, the non LDS viewer, somebody who's just in it for, you know, of gripping true crime doc? What are you hoping they'll take away from it in addition to watching a gripping true crime doc? I mean, yeah, first and foremost, I think it's just an incredible true crime story. There's nothing else like it out there um, as it relates to religion, belief, deception, murder. I mean, just the whole forensic component of it. Um, first of all, I hope that people go into it cold and don't Google anything and don't go on Wikipedia because I think they'll really, really have an incredibly entertaining experience. But um, yeah, in a world of misinformation, I think there are just so many relevant themes and, um, you know, you, we, we all just have to be on guard about what we believe in and what narratives we choose to live our lives by. Well, I learned a lot watching it as a story I didn't know really anything about. And I thought it was handled with such sensitivity, humor, grace. Uh, really, congratulations on the film. I really enjoyed it, Jared. And thanks for talking to me about it. Thank you so much, Rebecca. And now here's my interview with Tyler Meesum, who directed the series alongside Jared Hess. Tyler Meesum, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thanks, Rebecca. Happy to be here. Now, I have a note made by my excellent producer that you have been in a rabbit hole about Mark Hoffman's story. I want to hear about your research and the rabbit hole you went down. I've been there and I love to hear about other people's rabbit holes. When you make a documentary, uh, I think the best way to make a documentary is to really throw yourself into it. And so when I, whenever I've made my films, I really just overly research the subjects. And I think I just, and that's why I choose subjects that fascinate me, that are interesting, that, that, um, that will keep me interested because for goodness sakes, the, the, the making a documentary is tiring and it's long and, you know, like running a marathon at mile 22, you're just tired and you want to quit. But if you find a subject that you love and that's fascinating and that keeps giving you new information as you dig, then it's much easier to finish the thing. So 
when I started this film about Mark Hoffman, I started the light research. You know, you read a couple books, you talk to a few people, but then you start to get into this <laughs> extreme rabbit hole of uh, of research and papers and documents and you know, then you start uncovering uh, more. And so over the course of this, I found like Mark Hoffman's journals and his letters and his high school yearbooks and his high school papers and his college papers. And I just got a little obsessive about it in some ways. And and what I did, and whether it helped the film or not, uh, I did this long chronology of his life. And I tried to find out basically what he did most every day. I mean, obviously not every day was important, but just everything I could about what he did on that particular day from birth to, you know, imprisonment and even past that. And that really became, oddly enough, kind of the guide for the film because it was what we just kept referring back to in some ways. Now, having done research like this myself and having written books and so forth, there are things sometimes that you dig up that, you know, we call in my house, my husband's my co-writer, um, oh shit moments where you find something that's like that completely either changes what you think about somebody or just adds something new that you didn't expect. I imagine with Hoffman, there were many of those moments. And I'm curious about something that you may have found out about his life or how he was made that didn't end up in the film that, you know, if you had more time, you would have included. There was such this unbelievable uh, cache of materials that we used and tried to whittle down. And I think the most important part about making a documentary is not what to put in, but what to leave on the cutting room floor. And so we left a lot of great stories to really make, give a quick one is that at the end of Mark Hoffman's uh, forging career, an Emily Dickinson poem had been discovered in 1997 and the Emily Dickinson Museum raised a bunch of money from the community. They purchased it. And then they found out from Brent Ashworth, who was a uh, someone Mark knew that it was a forgery. And that like, and, and, and then of course the owner of it gave it back to Sotheby's and it was such an amazing, amazing story that we couldn't fit in. But, uh, I, I read a letter about, and Mark rarely writes letters, but I read the letter that he wrote to this person and how he wrote this poem that fooled Emily Dickinson experts. Uh, and he said that he read Emily Dickinson for about a half an hour and found her muse. And then he wrote the poem. And as a creative person who is continually searching for that muse and very interested in that muse that we uh, suppose always exists, I, I found it fascinating that he was also artistically interested in capturing this creative element while he was doing such nefarious actions. Now, I was really impressed in this film because it's, it's an historical crime documentary, and it is very hard to do pacing and suspense when you're looking at a crime that, you know, someone could look up on Wikipedia while they're watching your documentary, for instance. So you, I'm sure you have to be conscious of that and do kind of like that TikTok moving along thing where the viewer is drawn in and there's some suspense and you don't want to look up what happened because the film keeps you in. And I'm curious about how you go about doing that, especially with a case that's this many decades old. Um, one of my mentors in this industry, uh, Nick Frazier of the BBC, he, he came onto my first film and he said, uh, you always have to give the audience uh, a, a one step forward. They have to learn a little bit and then they have to get shoved back two steps and then one step and two step and then eventually it becomes two steps. And, and we always tried to do that. 
uh, our editors, geniuses, uh, Matt Precop, Greg O'Toole. Greg had previously edited a film of mine, An Honest Liar. And they just, they just knew how to do that. Um, editors are the unsung heroes of the film world. Yes. <laughs> yes. My opinion, they, there should be an Academy Award nomination for, uh, for documentary editors because they are the best storytellers. They are the most patient. And oftentimes they work with directors who don't know what the hell they're doing or don't know the story. And they're just able to take what can be thousands of hours of material and call it down into an hour and a half and just make it sing. Um, mm. And so we had amazing editors and thank goodness for them, because a lot of times Jared and I would be like, no, you got to put this in. It's so great. It's such a great story. <laughs> and they just be like, it doesn't it doesn't matter. And editors have this ability. They have this ability to just go, you know, uh, in, out. Delete. And I'm like, that's a great scene. Yeah, we got to show that. And they're like, it doesn't matter. No one will know it even exists. <laughs> this doesn't so, need to be 75 parts long. <laughs> right. Right. So uh, we had great editors in order to tell this great story. Yeah. It's interesting to me. And I watch a lot of Netflix documentaries because I do this podcast and also because I love Netflix documentaries. Um, some people, it's like, they live their life like they are going to be in a documentary someday telling their story. You know what I mean? They, they see themselves as the protagonist uh, when they're in a scene or their life and in a way that the rest of us don't. He liked the Dallas show. I think Mark used the character JR in Dallas as a role model. I just want you to know, JR, I'm going to nail you. Haven't you noticed? You got to be a man, JR. How bold he was in his actions and how he would. Look good on the outside, but underneath what he would do to people. Oh, I knew there was a reason I liked that boy. Yeah, he's just about the best liar I ever met, with the exception of myself, of course. Well, the police theory that Hoffman was forging documents comes as a real surprise to the community of scholars and collectors who work with Mark Hoffman. When the evening news would come, he absolutely loved, loved it searched his car at home. They found old paper and ink that could have been used in forging documents. Hoffman is the prime suspect. He says, I recognize one person there on TV. And they would be talking about him being a suspect. They'd be talking about what was happening with him in the investigation, in the news. He just, he reveled in that. Do you think he sees himself as a big character in the world and like isn't surprised at all that films are being made about him, for instance? He has th this story. It's his story. Uh, it's a remarkable story, and I think he knows it. He's never spoken. He's never spoken to anyone since his uh, since his uh, is he's been put in, put in prison, um, other than family members. And I think this is just his secret. This is all he has. This is what mm -hmm. he has. He has a small jail cell um, in a small town in Utah, Gunnison. He lives in, or he's incarcerated in. And this is his story. That's all he has is mm. this. And I have written him, goodness, I sent him a letter a couple of days ago. I've written him dozens of times to no reply. Mm. So he knows this film is coming out. I doubt he has Netflix on in his jail cell. He's one of the few people that probably doesn't have it across the country. So whether he'll be able to watch this, I don't know. I, mm. I, I don't know. Um, I'd love to I'd love to find out if uh if hell, I'd love to find out if he just it's my letters. You can always mail him a transcript of, of the documentary. That's one way to to get incarcerated people to to read the the media that you've done about them. I've done that before, and it was it was an interesting experience. Um, I, did you have a list of questions that you were prepared to ask him? And if so, what was the first one? Well, 
I mean, the first one or the best one? You know, okay, the, what's the yeah, best yeah. one? Because <laughs> when you interview someone, you usually give them a softball question to start. But... <laughs> That's true. A warm up. And, and, and I, I don't think I'd ask him a question. I think I'd, through a series of questions, try to glean uh, wh- why did he turn left versus turning right? You know, what what was what gave him this need to deceive? In the film, we we cover how at the age of 14, he he bought a coin uh, and he manipulated the mint mark and made it worth thousands and sent it into the U.S. Treasury. And they said it was genuine. And that feeling that you must have had as a 14 year old kid to not just fool your friends or your mom, but to fool the treasury experts. I mean, the power that must have given him, that the energy, that rush that he must have had to do that. And, you know, like Freud said, we're all trying to replicate our first sexual experience and the, the joy that we got from that or the pain, whatever it may be. I think Mark got that same thing. I think that first deception that he did, he wanted to keep making it better. He wanted mm. to go bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until at one point he just couldn't go any bigger. Isn't this an immersive con, though? Because he's also pretending to be a devout Mormon, as you said. He was a wolf in sheep's clothing. I'm assuming he had to do that pretending at home, too, with his wife and kids. This is a 24-hour-a-day operation if he is, in fact, like playing a character, right? I, I think his wife knew a little bit that he wasn't as faithful as uh, the community thought he was. Hmm. Mormons can't drink. Uh, and from what I've been told, the first thing Mark would do when he'd fly to New York is when he'd get on the plane, the first thing he'd do is he'd order vodka hmm. so you know he was barely over you know off the ground before he was uh you know changing his moral compass hmm. but i i think she kind of knew a little bit uh i think dory his wife tended to look the opposite way in many aspects i think mark might have chose her and crafted her in order to be um oblivious to what he was doing that's really interesting because i think the depiction of Dory in the film is really empathetic. I find her to be yet another one of his victims. I mean, she was basically, you know, found herself living in a crime scene, which it seems as if she wasn't really aware of. And, you know, it can't be easy to go on, you know, when you've been in the middle of something that has hurt so many people. Mark fooled a lot of people. He fooled collectors. He fooled the Mormon church. The Mormon church bought hundreds of documents from him. Uh, not all of them were forgeries. Uh, he, he fooled experts, auction houses, collectors. On occasion, he would fool all these people. He fooled Dory every day, every single day of his life. He he fooled her into believing he was something he was not. And I asked her one day prior to the film, I was like, was he a good father? And she said, you know, he was. He actually was a good father. He loved his kids. He, he was a good husband. He took care of us. Um, he was always there. And then uh, about a week later, she called me up and she goes, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to recount what I said about him being a good father, because a good father doesn't knowingly do things uh, that will put him in jail for right. the rest of his life. Hmm. So, no, he was not a good father because he was fooling his kids and me and eventually did things that took him away from us. I am curious about the bombings. I think. It's more clear why Steve Christensen's office was bombed. And, and and Mark set the bomb off in his own car in order to throw suspicion off himself and then destroy a trove of things that didn't exist, right? That was the reason why he did that. I mean, nobody really knows the reason why he did it. And of course, Mark says it was, Mark said that he uh, set the bomb so he could commit suicide. Of course, Mark is not a very reliable narrator. Uh, the third bomb... There's so much speculation of what that was. Uh, 
it could have been meant for Brent Ashworth. And we mentioned that in the film that, uh, and I, I believe most likely it was meant for Brent Ashworth. Uh, a piece of paper had been found, a fragment of the box, uh, the brown paper package, and a, an R was on it. That's all it meant. So it could have been, you know, from Brent, or it could have been Al Rust. Uh, uh, it could have been, people say it might have been Mark's father. People say he might have taken it to the church. Um, I think personally, Mark was targeting Brent Ashworth, but when he couldn't, he wanted the the car to blow up and destroy the documents in the inside. Uh, I don't think he wanted it to hurt him personally. I think it would have, uh, I think his intent, my speculation is that he wanted it to blow up so that he could skip town. They're after me. I'm going out of town. Mark was being hounded at that time. He had so much debt. He had so many people coming after him to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. He'd made promises that his forging hand just couldn't keep up with. And that's why he planted the bombs, which is so even more callous. He just tried to buy time for God's sakes. But he, he had this bomb and the the, the package was, uh, it, it, it was, you know, t if you tilt it, it would blow up. And Mark's car was parked on a, a hill. And when we shot the recreations, we actually took the car to that same spot that it happened and it slanted. So I think he tied those wires together, not knowing because, he, you know, he had the wires. He had two wires. I shouldn't tell people how to make bombs, regardless. What? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think people who want to make bombs are listening to this podcast. I'm just going to make a guess. <laughs> They're about to NPR tote bag carrying. Put your kale down for a minute. <laughs> I'm one of those. So, uh, but I, he, you know, he he would he would run wires out of the box and connect them, and that would what what, what would connect the electrical circuit. And if it was tilted, it would go off. And the I don't think he thought that when with the slant of the the, the street, that when he connected those two, it would go off. And I think that's what happened, um, and blew him out of the car, um, and almost killed him. So if you think that's what happened, do you think the documents in the back were his attempt to buy time? Uh, and just say I have part of them. Like I, that's why I thought maybe it was more intentional because then he could say, "Oh, I had them, but sorry, they blew up, and you can't have them now." You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, I think that he uh, was hoping to pretend that those were the McClellan collection, um, and and in in the end, they were worthless old documents, just yeah. old papers from the 1800s. There are so many thoughtful interviews and sources. I, I think about the Alvin Rust interview. I, it's, I, it's all I keep thinking about now when I think about this film, that his ability to sort of talk about his role in this and what happened to him, but also be able to talk about moving on from it, being forgiving, you know, it just seems so candid in a way that I think is really rare, especially in true crime stories. People are usually so you know, concerned about how they're coming off. And it doesn't seem like the sources in this, like, gave you that. It seems like they really were themselves. And and that's genuine. That is not, when he says, I forgave Mark Hoffman, it, it's true. He, he did. Outside of the individuals who had their lives taken and possibly those who were related to them, I think Mark did the most damage to Al Rust. Mm. And, and, and not just monetarily, um, you know, he, hundreds of thousands of dollars Al Rust lost to Mark. It had, in the mid 80s when 100,000 plus dollars meant a lot more than it does now. Pocket change now, right, Rebecca? Yes, yes, pocket change. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and I mean, it almost broke him. And hmm. it, 
he he bought and sold so many of these documents. And to Al Rust's credit, all of these documents that he bought from Mark and sold to other individuals, he gave their money back. So in addition to being out $185,000 to Mark for the McClellan collection, he was out another X amount of hundreds of thousands of dollars because he was so good about buying these back and saying, I'm sorry I sold you these forgeries. He was in debt to the tune of $500,000, give or take. And it took him years to to uh, repay that and and to, to to you know to get out of debt and a lot of his collection he sold. Al Rust is salt of the earth, and part of this uh, Mormon community is to forgive and to to let go and to know that uh, even though he perpetrated against this guy and many others awful crimes, uh, it's very Christ-like to forgive and. Uh, you know, he he did something that most people would never be able to do. Now, I didn't know a lot about this story when I started watching your documentary. I know I feel like a lot about it now. I think the documentary is very efficient in telling the story in a really thorough way. And I, I just I got a lot out of it. I'm wondering what you're hoping besides just learning about the Mark Hoffman story and what happened in Salt Lake City in the 80s. I'm wondering what else you're hoping people will take away when they watch your film. Mark Hoffman preyed upon a very unique culture, and he he did a very good job of giving people what they wanted to believe. We live in a time when, uh, like I said, information is literally at your fingertips. Yet people will believe misinformation and readily accept it, I think, more than ever. And there are entities out there who will prey upon that, whether it's for profit or power or just for kicks. So. I'd like to. I, I'd like people to watch this and just go. You know, if 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 somebody is presented presenting you something that seems to be too good to be true, and it feels good when you see this document that has never been found before, or this piece of news, or this piece of gossip, or conspiracy theory, maybe you should just look a little bit deeper. Spend a little mm. bit of time and say, okay, is this document real, genuine, and do I need to buy it? Mm. Uh, there's always going to be snakes in the grass trying to sell you faulty merchandise. Just be a little aware of it. Be aware of whether or not it had the ink sucked through it with a vacuum cleaner. Genius. <laughs> Genius. <laughs> Tyler Meesum, the film is Murder Among the Mormons. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for talking about it with me. Of course, Rebecca. Thank you so much for uh, having us on. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to directors and executive producers, Tyler Meesum and Jared Hess. For more of my takes on pop culture and true crime, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to, rate, and review this show, and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on Operation Varsity Blues. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue, and our producer is Shayna Deloria. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.